Does the name Charles Blondin mean anything to you? Some of you trivia buffs might know. On June 30th, 1859, Blondin walked 1,100 feet. That wasn't so amazing. You can do that by the end of the day. The amazing part is that he walked 1,100 feet, 160 feet in the air, across a tightrope over Niagara Falls. There's a black and white photograph you can see of Charles Blondin captured as he's halfway across. And this was not a one-time event for Mr. Blondin. He walked across Niagara Falls several times. Some estimates are 17 times that he crossed. Each crossing came with a different crowd-gathering, pleasing twist. Once he crossed Niagara Falls on a tightrope blindfolded. Another time he upped the ante and crossed on stilts. One time he apparently sat down, cooked an omelet, and ate breakfast. On an occasion, he asked the gathering crowd if they thought he could go across Niagara Falls pushing a wheelbarrow. A gathered crowd said yes. So Blondine tight-ropped across Niagara Falls pushing a wheelbarrow, and the crowd, of course, responded. So another time, Blondine asked, how many of you believe that I can push a person in the wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. Yes, we believe you can do that, the crowd shouted. So Blondine looked at a man standing close to him and said, do you think I can push a man across Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow? Would you like to see that? And the man said, yes, to which Blondine replied, get in. And he didn't move. Well, friends, whatever else an account like that illustrates, it recognizes that all of us come to points in our life where we're faced with the decision to trust or not. We all have those, may I put it this way, we all have those get in the wheelbarrow moments of life where we're faced with the decision of trust. Sometimes those are every ordinary, everyday ordinary choices. Like this, these are some things we talked about in our small group last week. Will you trust the word of the Lord and come to church or not? Will you trust the Lord and give your offerings to the Lord or not? Will you trust the word of the Lord and not date someone who's not a believer or not? I'm sure there's some way this morning that your trust in the Lord is being tested. Maybe it's about what God's word says about the God glorifying roles of husbands and wives in marriage or of fathers and mothers in parenting. Maybe that's where you're being tested. Maybe it's about what God's word says about the friendships and conversations that you have at your school. I don't know where it is for you. I don't know what it is for you. But those are the kinds of tight ropes of faith, the moments of trust we face all the time throughout the day with God and his word. Who or what are you trusting this morning? And even when we're not in those moments of crisis, we're always trusting something by default, whether you're religious or not. You're trusting something. A million things come at us all the time, asking us to trust them. And whatever you trust will control you, and not only control you, but you will be like. Read later Psalm 115, 5 to 8. You are what you eat, you say. You're also what you worship. Would you please turn to a book in the middle of the Christian Bible? It's the book of Isaiah. We started looking at this last week. Now it's part two of this overview message. Last week in Isaiah, we saw two kings at the beginning and end of the first part of Isaiah. Ahaz and another named Hezekiah faced with the same choice. They're both surrounded by a superior army and they are faced this question, who would they trust in? 
In particular, Hezekiah's military opponent mocked him if he trusted God. On Isaiah 36, the Assyrian general Rabshakeh says, let me go ahead and take this off the table for you. He says, you're not going to trust God, are you? So whether you're in the break room at work, you're in the lunch table at school, or you're in that DEI training session, the only thing you're not allowed to talk about is God. The mocking voice of Rabshakeh is alive and well today. And the book of Isaiah, an old book written 700 years before the birth of Jesus, forces us to face this really old book, forces us to face a breaking news up to the minute question, who will you trust? In the second half of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, God is confronting people again, people like you and like I, again and again, what we're trusting in. And here's the message. Unless you're trusting in God alone, everything else will ultimately fail you. For Judah, that southern kingdom, it was a great nation. They were tempted to trust in nations like Egypt and their cultures and Babylon and Assyria. That's who Judah was tempted to trust. But where are those nations now at this moment? Babylon and Assyria, once names so revered and feared, are so irrelevant to us today that we wonder, why are we talking about Babylon and Assyria today, this morning? What relevance do those nations have in a sermon, much less my life? Bro, boring, I'll hit the snooze button, wake me up when this part is over. Babylon and Assyria. But you see, that's one of the major points in Isaiah. Once God's people... People like you and people like I am were sorely tempted to trust those nations and worldviews and cultures and pleasures. It was a real crisis of faith for them. But now those worldviews, those lifestyles, those nations, once so appealing, are now irrelevant. And God warned his people then how foolish and short-sighted they were to trust things that don't last. And we all do it. What fools we are, Isaiah will tell us. Even our poets mock the things we trust in. You know this poem, some of you, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, wrote the poet Shelley, wrote of an Egyptian pharaoh, Ramses II, who's no longer dancing at the party anymore. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. But nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. So tell me then, God mocks his people in Isaiah and tells us now sitting here in Malden on a Sunday morning, tell me again why you are trusting things that won't last. They're nothing but dust, dust in the wind. They're all dust in the wind. So Isaiah devotes nearly an entire chapter in the second part of this book. Isaiah 44, he confronts us with our idols, the things we're trusting in. Friends, listen, we all trust in something, but everything else but God and his love will fail you. It will let you down. You want to know what you're trusting in this morning? I'm front loading the message because God's going to contrast himself with the things we trust in when we dive into Isaiah. You want to know what you trust in? Try this out. Here's one way. It's not the, here's one way. What makes you really angry or really sad? Whatever it is that makes you really angry or really sad might reveal what you trust. It might reveal an idol. 
You see, sometimes our emotions are common grace gifts of God. They're indicators telling us that we're in a dangerous situation and we need to get out. You're walking down a dark alley at night, a shadowy figure steps out of the, uh, out of a, out of the shadows with a stick, the adrenaline rush that you feel, the emotions, the anxiety you feel at that time, that fight or flight, that is one way that God made our bodies to respond immediately for safety and the safety of others. But God gave us our emotions for another reason as well. Sometimes, more than we know, our emotions are not only warning us of physical danger, they're revealing a spiritual danger. Something we're worshiping, something we're trusting. So what could our emotions be showing us that we trust in? Well, what consistently makes you really angry or really sad? Because whatever that is reveals what you trust. It's what you worship. Sure, Isaiah 44, you don't worship idols of stone and wood. Oh, those poor, silly people. But ask yourself now, what makes you happy if you get it and hopeless if you don't? What makes you feel important and valued? Or embarrassed and shamed. What does that for you on a regular basis? Every one of us in here, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer. There's something that makes you feel valued or embarrassed. Important or afraid. Whoever you are, whatever that is. That that sustained emotional status that you have shows what you're trusting. It shows what you're worshiping. And John Calvin says, you just don't have one of those functioning in your heart. Our hearts, John Calvin said, are idle factories. Take something like respect and control. They're fine in themselves. They're good things in themselves, but they can become a God we trust in. You may have never verbalized it like this, but deep down your life at this moment might be communicating this. Life has the most meaning for me. I have the greatest sense of self-worth and security when people appreciate me and respect me. In respect, I trust Or maybe your life communicates, life has the most meaning for me. I have the greatest sense of security when I know the schedule or I can set the schedule. In control, I trust. You know how that's so? You know how you know respect and control give you a sense of self-worth and security? Deeply so, because when you lose respect and when you lose control, you feel angry or hurt. You're shamed or you're anxious. And we look down at others who don't have a schedule like we do. What's happening? I'm just saying, could it be? Could it be that our responses reveal what we worship, that what we trust in the most, that in those moments of fear and anger, of shame and anxiety, that what you're really saying is this. Listen to yourself. Life has the most meaning for me when people respect me. I am valued when I'm respected. If so, then respect is your idol. It's what you trust in. Listen to the message of Isaiah 44. And if you say life has the most meaning for me, I have the greatest sense of self-worth and security when I can control things, then your emotions have shown you that you're controlled by control. Control is what you trust in. It's the idol that you're worshiping. We treasure and love something else more than God. That's what an idol is. Anything you treasure more than Jesus. We treasure our plans more than the wisdom of God. We look to others. We even look to ourselves, to only what God can give. And here's the message of Isaiah, Isaiah 44 and other chapters. Until you repent and smash those idols, you'll never be forgiven and you'll never grow in grace. Here's how Martin Luther put it. It's on the front of your order of worship. Sin. You see the front of your order of worship? He says, the sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. 
That's what God is confronting his people with in Isaiah's day. He's confronting them with their trust issues. And in confronting with their trust issues, he's confronting them with their sins. Remember what the first half, if you were here last week, the first half of Isaiah is all about, chapters 1 to 39. God is confronting the people with their sin. It's the God who justly judges the sins of his people and the nations. And the most common name for God in the first half and all of Isaiah is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord Almighty. 61 times, 62 times over 66 books, God stands as the Lord of hosts Almighty, meaning he stands as singularly supreme over powers and authorities and nations and supreme courts and the media and the bosses. He's the Lord of hosts. A king named Uzziah dies, nothing really changed. Listen to the worship of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is still full of his glory. And then after the end of one superpower named Assyria and after another superpower named Babylon has exiled Jerusalem. After world shaping, life defining events like the exile, Isaiah opens part two of his book as God declares this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first of the last. There is no God beside me. Isaiah 44, 6. I am the King of Israel, the Redeemer. Now remember again, that word Redeemer is special in Isaiah. It appears 13 times and all 13 times occur in part two of Isaiah's book, chapters 40 to 66. Part one is the Holy One of Israel who judges, 1 to 39. Part two, the Holy One of Israel who redeems, 40 to 66. Why is that important? Because God is not only the Lord of hosts reigning supremely over every part of history, He's also the Holy One of Israel. And as the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah opens with a series of indictments on His own people for their wrongdoing. Would you turn to Isaiah 1? Hopefully that's where you are. We're going to review and then jump to the part 2 in Isaiah 40. Remember this book opens and closes with the same phrase. Do you remember what the phrase was? Isaiah 1 verse 2, Isaiah 66, 24. Here's how it opens and closes. They have rebelled against me. They have rebelled against me. Which means their lack of trust in this book and throughout their history is fundamentally a disposition of rebellion. Again, listen how the Lord of hosts, the Holy One in Israel, diagnoses his people. And this diagnosis is important so that we underline the goodness of the good news that's about to come. Isaiah 1, 1 to 8. Listen to God diagnose his own people. This is God's word. Or down to verse 6. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they, meaning my people, have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people don't understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? This is how bad it is. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. 
and they are not pressed or bound up or softened with oil. This is the word of the Lord. For 39 chapters, God calls his people. He calls the nations to account, pronouncing woe after woe on them for their rebellion and refusal to trust him. That's the theme of chapters 1 to 39, the Holy One of Israel who judges. There are certainly beams of hope in the darkness in these 39 chapters. Before it happened, God predicted Assyria and Babylon would cut down the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. They would cut down those kingdoms to nothing remains but of itty bitty stump. But even though the kingdom was nothing but a lifeless looking stump, God promised that a tiny itty bitty branch is going to shoot forth just a baby sprig, a branch from the stump line of Jesse, the line of David, Isaiah 4 and verse 11. And as the kingdom comes to an end in the exile and the memory of David is fading, God's promising then another king is going to come. And this king would not only descend from royal blood, but this king would also be divine. Isaiah 7 and 9, God promised to give a baby boy who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. A baby boy hailed as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father. A baby boy hailed as the prince of peace. God was promising to judge his people. But in the midst of it, the Holy One in Israel was promising to redeem the nations through a tiny branch and a baby boy. And those promises of salvation anticipate the main emphasis of part two of Isaiah's message. The Holy One of Israel judges, but now comes chapters 40 to 66, the Holy One of Israel who redeems. And remember, this wonderful twofold division uh, tells us something about ourselves. We are so sinful, chapters 1 to 39, that we need a redeemer, chapters 40 to 66. An overflowing anger. For a moment, I hid my face from you, 1 to 39. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, 40 to 66. But the surprise comes in part two when we see how God will redeem a rebellious people. Yes, he will redeem them through a tiny branch who grows to be a king. Yes, he will redeem them through a baby boy, human and divine. But in part two, God's going to show us he's going to redeem us by a divine servant king who suffers. So putting all that together, as we said last week, This book of Isaiah is all about the God who saves his people from judgment through his suffering servant king, and he makes all things new. Two big sections of part two for us this morning. Chapters 40 to 66 break into two sections. We're going to spend almost our entire time on chapters 40 to 55. Chapters 40 to 55, the Holy One who redeems all people through his suffering servant. Chapters 65 to 66 56 to 66, the Holy One of Israel who redeems all people requires holiness and makes all things new. Who redeems all people through his suffering, who requires holiness, makes all things new. 56 to 66. But our main time will be spent on those 40 to 55. This book of the servant, Alec Mateer, an Old Testament scholar, calls chapters 40 to 50. Five, the book of the servant, and then the book of the conqueror, 56 to 66. But let's roll up our sleeves now. Let's open our eyes wide and behold the wonders of this God's love. You're in Isaiah 1. Would you turn now over to Isaiah 39? Let's go just before the end of part one. Here we are in Isaiah 39. The Lord of hosts has just delivered a king named Hezekiah and his people from the hand of a man named Sennacherib. 
He's also miraculously prolonged Hezekiah's life in Isaiah 38. The Lord has added 15 years to Hezekiah's life and healed him of a terminal disease. But Hezekiah does the worst thing you can do with the life that God gives to you. You know what the worst thing you can do with the life God gives to you? You can waste it. The worst thing you can do with your life. You can waste your life when you're young. We beat that drum a lot. But Hezekiah was old. And when Hezekiah got old, he wasted the last 15 years of the precious life that God gave to him. And when the king of Babylon heard of Hezekiah's miraculous healing, so spectacular was it that the king in Babylon heard that this king in Judah had been healed of a terminal disease. And the king of Babylon shows up and says, tell me what happened. But instead of Hezekiah showing the king of Babylon that the Lord of hosts is the treasure, Hezekiah opened up his treasure and said, go ahead, look at all my treasure. At that moment, King Hezekiah's life was simply a reflection of the nation who had wasted God's grace over the centuries and spent it on themselves. Only one life will soon be passed. You've heard that before from C.T. Studd, the Hall of Fame all-star cricketer, athlete of the University of Cambridge who became a missionary to China and India and Africa. He wrote that poem, Only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Hezekiah could not say that. He wasted the last 15 years of his life. And when he did, God pronounced a judgment that had been a long time in the coming. But now the announcement was perfect for the next 70 years. Are you ready? Look at Isaiah 39, verse 5. Here's Isaiah responding to Hezekiah, wasting his life. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts, Isaiah said to Hezekiah. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day, all that treasure you just showed off, it's all going to be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And instead of repent, Hezekiah says, well, at least I'll have security in my day. So part one ends. And something, God says something is going to happen. He announces it before it happens. You see, Assyria was the world leader at the time. That's who God just delivered Hezekiah from. But now before it happens, God tells Hezekiah, one day Babylon, that king you just let in, is going to carry away all these treasures and all the people who are my people. So it ends with the promise of deep darkness. Seventy years of deep darkness. Part one ends. This is the Holy One of Israel who judges. But now read, just go one, it's on the same page in my Bible, maybe it's, read, read the first line of chapter 40. Listen as part two of Isaiah's message begins, the opening five verses, Isaiah 40, one to five. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. 
Part two of Isaiah's gospel message opens. Did you hear it with words of double comfort, 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 my people, double, double comfort for Judah's double punishment, for she has received double for all her sins. Now, if you're familiar at all with Handel's Messiah, it's hard not to hear the orchestra thumping and the chorus singing. It's hard not to hear Isaiah. He must have been a tenor. As the Handel's Messiah opens, it's a tenor who sings these words, comfort ye, comfort my people. And what lies at the heart of the comfort? Her iniquity is pardoned. After 39 chapters spelling out judgment that Judah deserves, comes this stunning instantaneous assurance of pardon. Her iniquity is pardoned. Just moments before this, a few verses came the news of exile. But now words of comfort Comfort that my people, her iniquity is pardoned. This is amazing love. This is, how can this be? Judgment in this, this verse, the next verse, pardon. And not only does Isaiah share words of pardon, but also of return. Because in verses 3 to 5, Isaiah sings of a time when God's people will, in a sense, return from the wilderness of captivity, when every obstacle to their return to Jerusalem will be removed. Like what? Well, the high mountains and the rough ground will be leveled. And God will make a straight way like a flat plain and give them a highway to come back home. And when they get home, they'll see the glory of the Lord revealed. What's happening? Many things. But one thing is in these verses through Isaiah, God is predicting the exile before the exile even happens. Don't miss that. His opening words of pardon and prediction in Isaiah 40. If you don't see it, let me tell you. Isaiah scholars who read this, they're so blown away by this that some people say, Isaiah didn't write 40 to 66. It had to be written by two different people. Maybe by Isaiah's disciples or somebody. Why is that said? Because these opening chapters of part two, Isaiah is describing events that didn't happen in his lifetime as if they'd already happened. At the end of Isaiah 39, he tells Hezekiah, one day Babylon's going to carry Judah into exile before Babylon even had plans to do it. And now in chapter 40, Isaiah is describing people returning from the exile that hasn't even happened as if it's already happened. And when you do, it'll be a sign that God's pardoning your sin. Turn over to chapter 44. Don't get lost. Don't get lost. Chapter 44. This is so big to what's going on. You see, one of the ways God's going to end this exile, well, you say, how is he going to end the exile? He's going to raise up in Isaiah part two, two redeemers. One redeemer is a suffering servant we'll look at at the end. But the other redeemer is a Persian ruler who will let God's people go and help them with money and to rebuild Jerusalem. Listen as God makes a prediction in Isaiah 44, 28. I want to read it and then tell you why you should go, that's crazy. Isaiah 44, 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem. Cyrus is going to say, she shall be built. Cyrus will say of the temple, your foundations will be laid. And one verse later in Isaiah 45, 1, the Lord refers to Cyrus as his anointed one. That's the word Messiah. The Lord says to his anointed Messiah, to Cyrus. So God says in this chapter, he's going to use a Persian king named Cyrus to lead a second exodus. There's only one problem. Everybody's reckoning 
The Persian Empire and Cyrus don't even exist until 150 years after this. But in Isaiah 44 and 45, before Cyrus exists, 150 years before he exists, God says one day a Redeemer will come. Let me tell you his name, Cyrus. And here's what he's going to do. So think of what Isaiah has done. From the time Isaiah 39 ends to these opening chapters in part two, Isaiah, whose name means Yahweh saves, describes the comfort and pardon of a people who've not yet even been fully judged yet. He can't wait to redeem his people. He also announces their exile to Babylon before it happens. Then he describes their return from the exile before the exile happens. And to top it all off, 150 years, Isaiah announces the name of a man who will redeem his people, a man named Cyrus, a secular ruler, whom, by the way, God calls my shepherd and my Messiah. That's why people read this and they say, there is no cotton-picking way Isaiah wrote that. You can't even predict the outcome of today's football games. And you're going to tell me 150 years beforehand, out of nowhere, Isaiah goes, Cyrus, back to the land. But one way, one way you know Isaiah wrote chapters 40 to 66, and these words of pardon and prediction are his, is because the New Testament authors ascribe these chapters to Isaiah and build their entire arguments off of it. Let me give you one example. There are several. Some of you have been studying Mark, in our family Bible time, I've heard from a number of you how good it's been, how what a great job Frank has done. You recall how the Gospel of Mark opens? He quotes from Isaiah 40. Opening line, he quotes from Isaiah 40, and I want you to listen to Mark tell you who wrote Isaiah 40 in part 2. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Prove it to me. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet from chapter 40, Behold, my messenger I send before your face will prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Mark opens his gospel and bases the identity of Jesus Christ over the fact that Isaiah wrote Isaiah chapter 40. And not only that, did you see, did you hear who Mark says Isaiah 40 refers to? That voice of the one crying in the wilderness is John the Baptist and the glory of the Lord whom all flesh will see. That's Jesus Christ. No wonder Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel. He's not only announcing Cyrus as a redeemer who's going to lead people back from the exile of Babylon, but Isaiah is finally announcing the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God, who will redeem all nations out of the exile of sin. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. No wonder Isaiah is 40 is full of words of comfort. He's announcing the coming of Jesus Christ. And remember, he came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be, you tell me, might be what? Saved. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Your warfare is over. Your iniquity is atoned for. Now go back to Isaiah 40, verse 9. For the first time in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew ordering of the Bible, the word gospel, good news, is used 
Right after this big announcement, no wonder, no wonder, the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. And Isaiah 49 says, here's what you should do with this. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald, preacher of good news, preacher of the gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, preacher, herald of good news. Lift it up and don't be afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. And any time you see a New Testament writer use the word gospel, they're borrowing from Isaiah. And what's the heart of the good news? Behold your God and the glory about to be revealed. Now, here's my argument to you. That phrase, behold your God, becomes a topic sentence for the rest of part two. Behold your God is what's happening in 40 to 66, especially 40 to 55. But the only way that beholding God is good news if He's come to save you and not to judge you. And that indeed is good news. Think of this, beloved. You can behold God and live. That's good news. And we sang the reason why this morning. I will glory in my Redeemer. Therefore, His face forever I can behold. Now, this call to behold is a topic sentence. And Isaiah, from this point of 40 to 55, makes two big arguments. Here's the first one. In contrast to the idols and rulers you trust, false saviors, behold your God. In contrast to the false idols, behold the beauty of God's person and work. Second, behold the beauty and work of God's servant, who's the only way your sins can be pardoned. Behold your God. What I mean is his character and his work. See how beautiful they are? And what I also mean is behold your God. Behold the work of his servant. Let's look first at part one. Behold your God means beholding the beauty of his person and work. Let me give you five ways. Chapters 40 to 55 tell you you should behold your God. You could, you'll, you, maybe you'll come up with different phrases. You'll see things that I missed. Let me just give you five. To describe an infinite God. First, behold your God as the supreme reality. The most massive things on planet Earth fit in his pocket and can be weighed on a tiny postal scale on his desk. Show me where that is. Isaiah 40 verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? As for nations and groups of the world like Assyria and Babylon and Russia and China and Hamas, they are, Isaiah 41, 14, like a drop of water in a giant bucket. Behold God, the supreme reality. Second, behold God as the Powerful creator. Verses 25 to 27 of chapter 40. Here's, here it is. Here's the challenge. Why don't you compare me with your idols? To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Try this with your idol. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name? By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. You ever been to a restaurant? You ever been to somebody's house? And you want to know who did that recipe? Who's responsible for that action right there? Tell me who made that. 
You see a piece of artwork, you hear a piece of music. Who's that artist? God says, you go outside at night and you see Jupiter and Saturn hanging around the full moon in October. Who created that? Your God do that? Behold the power of Him as a creator. Not only behold His power, behold Him as the preserving creator. 28 to 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He is not faint or grows weary. His understanding is searchable. In fact, it works like this. He's so strong, He gives power to the faint. And to the one who has no strength, He gives you strength. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, I'm with you. Be not dismayed, I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I uphold you with my righteous hand. You don't uphold me. If I were hungry, I'd never tell you anyway. I don't need anything from you. Every breath you have in your lung right now that came out of your body this morning came from Him. He doesn't need anything. I preserve, I strengthen you. I never get tired. I never sit down. I never grow weak. I never grow old. I never stumped if I play Jeopardy. Never! I could think of an answer faster than Google. My understanding is unsearchable. I'm the persevering, all-powerful creator. How's your idol? Behold forth God as your, behold Him as your husband, Isaiah 54, 5. For this creator is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And what that is intended to remind us of, God's not simply a creator. He has a personal relationship of love that He shows to unfaithful people like you and me. Fifth, and finally, in this section, behold God as all-knowing. Here's, here's why I want to come back to. If you say somebody other than Isaiah wrote chapters 40 to 66, and I know they do a lot of good work, but I watched the Bible project the last two weeks, and they said somebody else probably wrote the second half of Isaiah, and I say you're nuts. If you remove, if you say somebody other than Isaiah wrote this, then you remove one of the chief arguments that God makes in these chapters about why you should trust Him, and all the other idols are fake. One of the main arguments he makes is, I alone predict things long before they happen. Isaiah, they're, they're all over part two. Let me give you two. Isaiah 45, 20 and 21. Listen to God's challenge. Assemble yourselves and come together. You survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God who can't save. I want you to declare and present your case. See if you're like this. Who told this long ago? Who declared this of old? Was it not I, the Lord, who said all this would happen? And there's no God and Savior besides me. Isaiah 46, 8 to 10. Remember this. I am God and there's no other. I declare the end from the beginning, declaring from ancient times things that have not yet occurred, saying, my counsel will stand and I'll accomplish my purpose. Do you see the point? When somebody says, when you say, I don't think Isaiah wrote the second part of Isaiah, you not only contradict the New Testament authors, you remove one of the very astounding arguments God gives for his supremacy among the nations and all gods. I determined to bring all things to pass and I reveal things long before they ever occurred. That's one of Isaiah's points. He says then, 
Behold your God, the beauty of his person and his work. There is no savior besides me. Who do you know is like this? You know what he's saying? When you read Isaiah 44, because the next chapter God confronts us with her idols, he says this, if you only understood the nature of your Savior, you would not fear or trust in those idols. Because this great God is also your Redeemer. If you would turn and behold God as the supreme reality, as your creator, as your provider, as the one who preserves you, as your lover, as the only sovereign over your past, present, and future, you would not fear those idols. Behold your God. So in chapter 44, God God rubs our idols in our face and he says things like this. I'll modernize it. He mentions a bunch of idols, but God is saying this. Are you really living for the respect of other people when this God is the lover of your soul? Are you really trying to find your security by controlling things in your life when the God who ordains all things before it happens is your Redeemer? Behold your God, the beauty and person of his work. Isaiah is saying, if you only understood his beauty, the nature of the Savior, who's clothed you with robes of love and righteousness, you would not fear. You would not give in to the idols of control, the idols of respect, because this great God who has no rivals is your Redeemer. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Your iniquity is pardoned. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And when you sin... You're sinning against this God. When you sin, you're making something other than Jesus your hope. You're making something other than Jesus' love your greatest love. But Isaiah is saying, here's what you have to come to the point of. You have to come to the point day by day in your life where you're saying nothing is as valuable as God. Nothing. Not even God's gifts are as precious as God himself is. Behold your God. Behold his beauty and strength next to your idols. But then we come to the heart of Isaiah's message. Because how is God going to redeem these people? How will he save them from judgment? And the answer comes in this second big behold. Behold God's suffering servant. Along with whether or not Isaiah wrote all of this book, people debate who is the servant that Isaiah is going to talk about. But the hopes and nations of this servant, the hopes and nations of all nations rest on the identity of this servant. Think of this for a moment. In chapters 40 to 55, God is going to introduce to us a figure called his servant. Just as the language of son in the Old Testament can refer to the nation of Israel or a person within Israel, so the servant language can refer to a nation or it can refer to a person. Israel as a nation is called God's son in Exodus, but David is called God's son in 2 Samuel 7 as David was to fulfill all Israel should have been as God's son. So son can refer to the nation or can refer to a person. Well, that's how the language servant works in Isaiah. So sometimes when you read in the second part of Isaiah, God speaks of his servant. He's referring to the servant nation of Israel. Isaiah 41.8, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Sometimes servant refers to the servant nation. But other times it refers not to the nation, but to a person. And the servant is a person who stands in for the people and he represents them. So it refers not to a servant nation, but servant person. Why is that important? Because Isaiah crafts a a song four different times that he sings about a servant person. Four songs dominate Isaiah 42 
through 53. There's a servant song in chapter 42. There's a servant song in 49. There's a servant song in chapter 50. And then in 52 and 53, there's the fourth and final one. And the most important one of those servant songs about a servant person starts at the end of 52. And here comes the point. Behold your God. Behold the beauty and work of his servant. The only way your sins can be redeemed. I know I've pushed you this morning. I know it's getting hot. I'm preaching hard because I'm starting to sweat hard. So I know your mind's probably on overload a bit. But stay with me a bit. Stay with me. Would you turn to the end of Isaiah 52? Isaiah says, behold your God. Now we're going to behold the servant of this God. I want you to read chapter 52. Chapter 52, the very... Chapter 52, verse... verse No whammies, big bucks. 52, verse 13. 52, verse 13. I want you to read the first line of this so you can see that Isaiah is speaking now of a servant person. This is what God's Word said. Just the first line, Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, you got my attention, Isaiah. Behold... My servant shall act wisely. That's something that can never be said of the servant nation. The servant nation Israel failed to act wisely through their history. That's why part one of Isaiah's message is, this is the Holy One of Israel who's come to judge. You've not acted wisely. So who is the servant person who's going to act wisely? Well, about 750 years after Isaiah writes these words, There's a man from Ethiopia who's riding in a chariot and he's reading these very words from Isaiah. I want you to note this. He's not from Israel. He's a high-ranking court official, a wealthy man from Ethiopia, a coastland of Africa. Isaiah himself casted a vision of a God who would redeem people from the coastlands of the earth. And now there's a man of Ethiopia from the coastlands who's reading Isaiah's book. And as this Ethiopian man of high importance is traveling, he's reading this ancient scroll of Isaiah, 750 years old. And at that moment, a man named Philip joins him. Philip is a follower of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Philip asked this Ethiopian man if he knows whom Isaiah is writing about as you're reading Isaiah 53. Now, that's the very question we're asking. Who is that servant? Who is that masked man? Who is that servant in Isaiah 52 and 33? That's what Philip says. Do you know who you're reading about? Well, in Acts 8.35, the Apostle Philip opens his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he does something. You know what he does? Isaiah 8.35, quote, beginning with this scripture in Isaiah, Philip opened his mouth and he told him the good news about Jesus. Did you hear that? Philip said the servant of Isaiah 53 is Jesus. It's not the nation. It's not Isaiah. It's Jesus. Isaiah 40 opened saying, I want you to publish good news. And now Philip says, you know what the heart of this good news is? Behold your God who gives us a suffering servant. Jesus Christ. You see, far more than promising a Messiah named Cyrus who would lead God's people from exile of Babylon, God is promising a servant 700 years before who would redeem the nations of the world like this Ethiopian man. And that servant person, Isaiah says, he uses this word again and again. He's going to redeem people from the coastlands of the world. 
And he's going to come from the kingly branch of David's line, Isaiah 4. He's going to come from a virgin's womb, Isaiah 7. He's going to be hailed as the mighty God, Isaiah 9. And he's going to be hailed and scoffed at as the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. But behold your God in his redeeming love. And now comes the big daddy surprise. How would this powerful creator redeem his people? At the heart of his servant's work is this. This servant is going to stand in the place of sinners and be treated as if he were the worst sinner who'd ever existed on the face of the earth. By suffering in the place of people like you and me, by being punished for our sins so that we can be parted and forever loved, that's what this servant's going to do. That's how he will redeem you. Behold your God as creator. Behold your God as redeemer. Isaiah 53, the servants, the greatest surprise of Isaiah. He's going to redeem the nations of the world, not by conquering them first, but by dying for them. Do you hear now? Go back and listen to Isaiah again. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And that divine son is this suffering servant king. Philip says Jesus is going to stand in the place of sinners like you and me. That we could be forgiven. Would you read now Isaiah 52? I want you to listen now as Isaiah narrates the substitutionary work of the suffering servant King Jesus. And it starts with, Behold, behold, 52.13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Now, now how is he going to be exalted? As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths of him. For that which had not been told, those kings and nations will see. And that which had they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And you want to know? Next verse tells you who the arm of the Lord is. The arm of the Lord is another title of Jesus. For this arm of the Lord, he'll grow up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely here's what's happening. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, judged and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted and he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. But you know who killed Jesus? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. There's the resurrection. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. This is the God who redeems us from judgment by sending his suffering servant to take sin and suffer in our place. Our Redeemer is the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. And when he says he sprinkled many nations clean at the end of Isaiah 52, this means Jesus never was just going to be a savior for the Jews. He was going to sprinkle many nations clean. Think of this. I hope I get this right. He has sprinkled many nations clean. So it means something like this, that sinners like Brad with an American heritage and sinners like Francois and Daniel with a Hispanic heritage and sinners like like Giovanna with the Brazilian heritage. Where was Giovanna? She was sitting over there today. She's downstairs. Sinners like Giovanna with a Brazilian heritage, Jared with a Filipino heritage, Nick with a heritage from the islands of Guam can all sing together of this king who sprinkled our hearts clean. We will glory in our Redeemer. This is the king of the nations promised by Isaiah. And then as you move, to 56 and 66, you find how comprehensive this plan is that through the redemptive substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus, God's not just going to make you new. He's going to make all things new, even a new heaven and a new earth. We read that from Isaiah 65. In the middle of this, the redemption that starts in Christ sends such shockwaves that Christ's resurrection from the dead is the first fruits telling you what's going to happen with everything. I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And the former things won't come to your mind anymore. But be glad and rejoice in what I create. Now, here's what's astounding. I'm going to create Jerusalem to be a joy. Wait a minute. They're rebels. They're sick from the top of their head to the sole of their feet. And now you're going to create Jerusalem to be a joy. And I'm going to be glad that Jerusalem is my people. Isaiah 65. And the sound of weeping will no longer be heard. But even as God promises to make all things new through Jesus, the suffering servant, you need to know, I need to tell you as a preacher of God's word in part two, that he often warns us in graphic terms that those who reject Christ will have their blood spattered like the juice of a stomped grape. That's the grisly warning of part two in Isaiah's book comes to an end. In other words, if the beauty of the Lord won't draw you away and to, maybe his warnings will. Isaiah 63 Isaiah looks at the servant and says, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? Answer, I have trodden the winepress alone. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. My year of redemption had come. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on earth. And Isaiah's book, the last line, 
ends speaking of the torments of hell where the fire is not quenched and maggots feast on corpses. Isaiah 66, 24. Oh, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There remains no more a sacrifice for sins. Yes, the book celebrates the redeeming love of God for his people. Yes, but it ends with a dire warning for every one of us here who continues to trust in yourself and not God. It's just as Bunyan described at the end of Pilgrim's Progress. Then I saw there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. So now you must choose to get in the wheelbarrow and cross the tightrope of faith. Will you get in and trust Christ? Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money. Come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why will you spend your money on food that doesn't give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. Behold your God and a suffering servant. So why will you trust your idols any longer? Every treasure you go after will cost you your life to get it. You pursue respect and control. It'll cost you your life to get it. But Jesus is the only treasure who died to make you his treasure. Behold your God.